from the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. This is part two of a co-production between Ways and Means and the Debugger podcast. I'm Bob Sullivan. Off to a very rough start. And in all honesty, since there has not been very much direct communication, save for people who work on their comms team, for lack of a better word, trolling members of our board on social media like Twitter. So you don't communicate, you just throw little bombs at each other on Twitter. I think that's been their strategy. It's it's sort of unreal, but spokespeople from within Facebook would would comment on things or say things like, you know, don't quit your day job or couldn't you find something better to do? Things like of that nature. And you're sort of going like, we just said something extremely serious about hate speech and, you know, conspiracy theories. And your response is like, don't quit your day job. Hi, I'm Bob Sullivan, and my day job is to host a podcast called Debugger. But this is a special project with Ways and Means on something called Platform Accountability. This is episode two of three. Please go listen to episode one if you haven't done that yet. But to catch you up, very large technology companies fit into a special category we're calling platforms. Raised up above everyone else, companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Amazon And since they have so much money and they are so powerful, the question is, what if society doesn't like something they're doing? What if society becomes convinced one of these tools is hurting kids or failing democracy or polluting the environment or stealing? Since they are so big that even fines don't seem to scare them, what now? Episode 2 is going to take a deep dive into what's been tried already, not everything that's been tried, just a couple of examples. And no, trolling isn't one of them. This series is supported by the Cyber Policy Program at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy and by the Keenan Institute for Ethics. I'm Professor David Hoffman and I lead the Cyber Policy Program. At the Sanford School of Public Policy, we are training the next generation of tech policy leaders in researching how tech platforms can show that they are behaving responsibly and ethically. As I said, trolling hasn't been very successful at reining in big tech. But what about self-regulation? Clerks, mechanics, secretaries, engineers, instructors, technicians of every kind. Plenty of industries set up organizations with names like the Associated Widget Makers of America, with the idea that they can keep themselves in check. Widget makers who cheat their consumers give the whole industry a black eye, so all the legitimate widget makers have an interest in rooting out bad actors. That works sometimes. Other times, this self-regulatory structure is really just a stalling tactic designed to delay lawmakers from writing new rules or creating new agencies to police an industry. In tech, both things have happened. A few years ago, Facebook took self-regulation another step farther, however. And that's our first stop on our What's Been Tried tour. After years of complaints that Facebook was acting as judge and jury when it came to controversies like removing hate speech or censoring political posts, Facebook decided it would create its own judge and jury, an independent entity, the Facebook Oversight Board. Announced in 2018, 
Mark Zuckerberg, was really excited about the prospect on this video from 2019. Today, we're here to talk about governance issues around giving people a voice and uh, content and, the, and, and finding the right balance between uh, free expression and speech and uh, making sure that safety uh, is, is respected and harmful content can, can be taken down from the internet as well. And you know, one of the things that I've been outspoken on is talking about the need for more uh, regulation of these areas, in, in some cases by governments and through democratic process, and uh, in other case, uh, through independent industry process. Um, and, you know, at Facebook, we're, we're not waiting until uh, that process goes through. We're trying to take some steps independently uh, to, to establish uh, things like this independent oversight board uh, that will, for, for content, which will give people in our community the ability to appeal content decisions that we make. Uh, so that way, if, if, um, if Facebook takes a piece of content down and you, know, you think that it shouldn't be taken down, then you'll be able to appeal it. And, um, and, and, if, and if you still disagree with, with our treatment on appeal, you'll be able to appeal it to this external independent board, and its decision will be binding. The Facebook Oversight Board, kind of like a Supreme Court for Facebook. The announcement struck a lot of the right notes. Independent, transparent, binding, giving people a voice. Sure, there are obvious reasons for skepticism. Who picks the board members? Could it really be independent? It's been three years since the entity was announced, and it has now published a series of decisions, so we decided to give it a fair shake. After all, it is a unique idea for a large tech company to set up its own Supreme Court, its own judicial system. Studying how the Oversight Board works has become a passion project for Alexis Ogorek, a second-year law student at Duke University. So the Facebook Oversight Board was created after Mark Zuckerberg was trying to think of a way to increase accountability and transparency within Facebook's content moderation process. So obviously, when Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook, he probably didn't predict it would get this big. And he certainly didn't think about all of the difficult decisions that would happen when you're dealing with people's free speech rights and having to moderate hate speech and the differences of nuances between cultures and contexts. Um, so the Facebook Oversight Board was meant to bring about academics and experts in a bunch of different areas of study, but also a bunch of different geographies to try to help make some of those decisions and keep Facebook accountable to its own policies. So Facebook takes down a lot of posts, posts that are dangerous, hate speech. The firm says it takes down 20 to 30 million posts just for violating hate speech standards every quarter. It's not easy. Mistakes are made. You can see why. Facebook wants to obviously remove hate speech. And a lot of that, they flag specific words that are known to be degrading, demeaning, offensive, hateful, particularly when you're looking at minority groups. Of course, there are always issues when groups try to reclaim words, right? And so like not I'm going to use bitch for an example because I'm a woman and I feel comfortable saying that one. But if somebody were to call me a bitch in an offensive way, that would be problematic. But if I were to say, like, let's go, bitches, in an uplifting reclamation kind of a way of the word, that would be okay. And some of the Facebook algorithms have problems detecting and noticing the context and the nuances between these two uses of the same word. 
And so when a minority group tries to reclaim a word, it often can get taken down. And of course, that's seen as problematic by the minority group. So some of the Facebook Oversight Board decisions deal with, well, what do we do in these contexts where the word is problematic, but the context is not? And all that makes sense. But I think part of the reason we're doing this podcast is, you know, wait a minute, who appointed Facebook as the arbiter of taste and morality? Uh, And why did they get to make these decisions? And, and, uh, you know, uh, why would we trust them to make such decisions, right? Yeah, that is a great question. And in short, Facebook kind of appointed itself. So how's it going? O'Gorg actually says she's impressed with the way Facebook went about creating the oversight board. So I actually do think that this was probably one of the better choices that Facebook could have made. And I think there are a lot of points in the procedure where they do call for external comment and public information. So once they established the concept of the board, they released a draft charter of it, and then they solicited public proposals on different board structures and design. They released all the global feedback and the input it got, redrafted the charter. They were very conscious about selecting members that wouldn't just bow to the whim of Facebook, which I think was important. So they wanted to make sure they had representation from the geographical communities that were represented on Facebook, but also a ton of different expertise backgrounds. So you have people who work on elections, people who work in international human rights, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, children's rights, access to information, terrorism, like you name it, there is somebody on the oversight board who specializes in it. Okay, so now that the board is established and in action, how does it work? A person who posts something on Facebook gets a notice saying the content has been removed, perhaps by an algorithm. That person also might be assigned a strike by Facebook. The user appeals, there's an internal review, and the decision stands. Then that user can appeal to the oversight board. And that happens. A lot. About 300,000 times already. But not every case is selected for review. If this were the actual Supreme Court, we'd be talking about whether or not a case was granted cert, whether or not the Supreme Court had decided the case was important enough to be considered by all nine justices. Now, since Facebook is assigning strikes to users who post conduct it finds objectionable, I'll stay with that metaphor. A very tiny number of appeals are selected for review by Facebook's oversight board. So that's the first strike against it. As you can imagine, there are hundreds and thousands of these reviews submitted. So there's a selection procedure. So administrative staff filters reviews and identifies a short list that's also a long list uh, for the committee's committee's consideration, taking into account really how the decision impacts others. And I I saw these numbers, right? Something in the order of 300,000 people make appeals, but ultimately (laughs) the board decides on a couple of dozen cases. Is that about right? Yeah, it's considerably less than 1% of cases get decided. (laughs) Um, I think in the first few months, it was less than one one hundredth of a percent of the cases. So that is one of the biggest critiques of the oversight board. It has good intentions, but they just can't get through enough material in any given time, like unless you would have to dramatically expand the size of the oversight board. So that's one critique for sure. I mean, it doesn't sound like a critique to me. It sounds like something that barely works. 
<laughs> I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but yeah. To be fair to Facebook, it says the oversight board picks cases that come up over and over again. So a single decision could act as precedent for maybe thousands of other cases. But we're not sure how that works yet. A lot of times context would tell you that these two cases are similar, but the decision may not necessarily be applied to the next case. Unfortunately, because there's not a lot of transparency about what those 300,000 case submissions are and what happens to those, I can't really tell you if the decisions are actually given precedential value or not, just hmm. because I don't really know what's happening to the other 300,000 cases that are not decided on. Meanwhile, despite that rather staggering number of cases, you'll probably be surprised to learn that Facebook's Supreme Court actually only gets to rule over a pretty limited part of the service. I'm going to call that strike two. So only certain types of content are eligible for review. So individual pieces of content is the limitation, which includes specific posts, photos, videos, and comments. What it does not include are groups, pages, events, advertisements. There's also decision types. So only content that can be removed, that was removed for violations, can be appealed. Only content removals can be appealed. So-called keep-up decisions. Someone complains about a piece of content, but Facebook decides it's okay. Those choices cannot be appealed. To Ogoric, this is a big swing and a miss. Strike three. When a post gets left up and that post is harmful or problematic, like spreading misinformation or spreading hate or advocating for genocide or pushing sex trafficking, to me, those are harms that are actively being perpetrated against other members of the community on and off Facebook. So I think leaving up something that is harmful is more of a problem than taking down something that is not harmful. I think when people hear the term Facebook Oversight Board, they might be excused for believing that decisions like that would be part of its charter. Absolutely. I personally was shocked to find it wasn't. It's kind of funny. It took me a lot of research and a lot of digging to figure out what exactly eligible meant. It wasn't easily defined anywhere. And so like I've read the charter and the bylaws and I've combed their websites dozens of times and figuring out that it was only posts that were taken down took hours. The appeals also take a lot of time. You might remember the Oversight Board's most famous ruling. Facebook's Oversight Board has decided to uphold the site's suspension of former President Donald Trump, but left the door open. It took about five months. That's typical, Ogoric says. How long does this process typically take? <laughs> uh, great question. Let's go all the way back. Let's say Facebook makes a final content decision on a piece internally. The user has 15 days to decide if they're going to appeal it to the Facebook Oversight Board. And then from there, there's an additional 60 days until decisions will be made. Ogoric got back to us later to say the actual timeline might be closer to 180 days, but you get the point. The panel can request extensions of this. I haven't really seen very many of those. 
And when necessary, the process can be expedited to only 30 days between when it was submitted to the oversight board and when it was finalized. But I might say in October, here's a strong opinion I have about a, a candidate running for office in November. And yep. if that get, post gets taken down and restored in January, what good does that do? Exactly. A timeline like that? That definitely sounds like a strike to me. So is this. How long have you been working on this research? Oh my gosh, I want to say since October or November, so three-ish months now. This makes you one of the world's leading experts in the Facebook Oversight Board, it sounds like to me. I've been over this website a dozen times. It is fascinating to me. It ties in with some of the other research that I'm doing, but it's kind of just become a passion project, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. What does it suggest to you about the potential effectiveness of the Facebook Oversight Board or any company that might imagine a structure like this, that you, Duke Law student, have spent several months trying to figure this out and still haven't quite figured it out. What does that suggest to you about how well this is working? I mean, quite frankly, I don't think it's as transparent as it claims to be. Is that strike four or five? Also, the Oversight Board is quite limited in what it can do. It's pretty much stayed in the realm of content moderation decisions. It has nothing to say about, for example, the research suggesting Instagram hurts children. In fact, when that story was released, the Oversight Board came out with a statement saying the research, well, it was news to them. So that's a lot of strikes. Still, O'Gork isn't as cynical about the Oversight Board as some others. I've heard from people I've interviewed for this podcast who tell me the idea of a Facebook Oversight Board itself is fatally flawed. Do you think that the Facebook Oversight Board has a role in the platform accountability? I think if Facebook treated the Facebook Oversight Board as legitimately as it says it does, it could have a role. But the fact that it's keeping information from the Oversight Board in the first place is obviously deeply problematic. The fact that the Facebook Oversight Board actually has such limited ability to make decisions on content and the policy recommendations don't seem to be truly treated as recommendations, rather as a, well, we have to consider this, but it's unclear whatever happens, like how long it's considered or how deeply. If they were truly ceding control of content moderation to an oversight board, I think that could be effective, but that is just blatantly not what's going on right now. I think this is a very good prototype that could be built off of. I think that there probably, to my knowledge, there wasn't something like this before at the Facebook Oversight Board. There wasn't something like the Oversight Board before this. It's a novel idea, and one could imagine a structure like it could play a role in platform accountability. But there is something like it now, at least in name, a group calling itself the real Facebook Oversight Board. It was created soon after Facebook announced its Oversight Board by experts around the world who were critical of Facebook's idea, worried it just wouldn't work, that the firm needed a truly independent body of outsiders to review important decisions. You've already heard from one of its founders, Kyle Taylor, at the top of this podcast. Let's just say the real Facebook Oversight Board and Facebook don't see eye to eye. More like spitball for spitball. You shouldn't be surprised to hear Taylor thinks Facebook's attempt at self-regulation 
quasi-independent regulation is doomed. Why, first of all, do you think Facebook's oversight board didn't work or doesn't work? I mean, I think I think that the the baseline assumption, the idea that a an industry or a company could fund and set up their own oversight board is in and of itself a conflict. So I think of it as, you know, if if an oil company set up their own oversight board to decide where, where they could drill. This ship is drilling one of the deepest holes ever drilled in the Gulf of Mexico or a, a tobacco company set up their own oversight board to decide who they could sell cigarettes to. You get a lot to like with a because the point at which Facebook created their own oversight board would be you know, the point at which those companies would have taken those types of decisions. And the answer to those two is, well, there are laws that, that decide there are government enforceable laws that decide where a company can drill and who a company can sell a cigarette to. And that's why I think ultimately we believe that the, the need for similar regulation over big tech must sit at the government enforceable level. So, you know, if you're writing the bylaws for your own oversight board, it's like being allowed to mark your own homework. The real oversight board was intended to be temporary set up as a watchdog in the run-up to the contentious 2020 presidential election. But it became clear soon after that Facebook issues would linger well beyond election night. We finally learned what it would take for social media companies to boot President Trump from the platform. A violent mob of supporters breaching the Capitol building. What we saw on January 6th in the first 202 interviews of people involved that were done by the Department of Justice nearly half cited Facebook or Instagram as a way that they either heard about the insurrection or helped to organize the insurrection. So half of the people who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th got there in some way because of Facebook. Yeah, of the half of the, the first roughly 200 people that the DOJ interviewed, that's all that's been publicly released to date. So I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of the total number of people, but it's a pretty large sample size, 200 people. And to think that half of them cited a Facebook-owned product as their tool either to find out about or to facilitate, I think is, is extremely important to remember. In episode one, we talked a lot about the David versus Goliath nature of platform accountability. Companies like Facebook are so large, their legal teams dwarf the regulators who try to enforce rules against them. Well, the tiny, real Facebook oversight board is quite a David indeed. Still, it seems to get under the company's skin. The first thing Facebook did to react to them was try to get their website knocked off the internet for, essentially, copyright infringement for using Facebook's name as part of its URL. But, you know, it is daunting sometimes to think we are still taking on one of the most powerful companies in the world and arguably the most powerful person in the world in a ecosystem where a large part of the public is dependent on their tools. Has there ever been a moment where it was scary? Oh, has there ever been a moment it was scary? Honestly, I, I would say there's not been a moment when it, it's scary, but the word surreal does come to mind when you're seeing people within Facebook's company structure, sort of trolling you, for lack of a better word, on Twitter, you're sort of going like, what is happening? This is a, a spokesperson for a major corporation just trolling 
act civil rights activists on Twitter. And if anything, it almost reinforces to you how much power they have if they feel that they're able to do that successfully. But I, I wouldn't say it's scary. I'd say it's daunting. Uh, do you have an example of the trolling? You've mentioned it a couple of times. Oh, yes. It's sort of unreal. But spokespeople from within Facebook would would comment on things or say things like, you know, don't quit your day job or couldn't you find something better to do? Things like of that nature. And you're sort of going like, we just said something extremely serious about hate speech and, you know, conspiracy theories. And your response is like, don't quit your day job. Facebook PR seems to know something. You've probably heard that extreme views, provocative views, get the most engagement on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Well, it's not just extreme views. Rudeness, sarcasm, trash-talking, dunking on your opponents, as the kids say, these things all play really well on social media, too. Really, to me, it speaks to hubris, right? It speaks to the belief that you are untouchable and therefore you can say or do anything. Um, and I've always read these incidents as signals of of the level of unchecked power. If you treat people that way with abandon and think that they're, that nothing will happen as a result, I mean, that really must be a level of self-belief in terms of power that is extreme. No one's going to yell at you for saying something rude, right? <laughs> no, you'll get a lot on social media. You'll get a lot of likes and reshares and comments if you say rude things. So... It's almost incentivized as currency. What's not incentivized, Taylor says, is decisions that help humanity. So when Facebook is faced with a decision, what's good for society or what's good for the bottom line, it's a fantasy to think the company would choose the good for society. He thinks Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen brought receipts to Congress showing that this is true. Absolutely, I believe that following Francis Haugen's testimony and the release of those documents, we now know that what we have believed to be true for years is in fact true based on Facebook's own internal documents, whether it's their ability to deal with hate speech or their prioritization of engagement over all else. And I'll just give one example. There was a, a piece of information in the Haugen documents that suggested from internal documents that engineers at Facebook had found a way to reduce COVID-related disinformation by 38%, but that it was directly nixed by Zuckerberg himself because it would reduce engagement too much. Even without financial pressures, content moderation choices are incredibly challenging, as Ogur demonstrated earlier. They're made even more complex by a very new digital era problem sometimes described as free speech versus free reach. It's one thing to tell the guy sitting next to you at a coffee shop that the COVID vaccine includes a computer chip. That's free speech. It's another to tell millions of followers on social media. That's free reach. And that's a platform problem. Remember in episode one, we described a county fair with raised platforms for musical acts rising above everyone else at the fair. Tech platforms like Facebook and Google and YouTube and Twitter give people an amazing megaphone of reach. And in fact, the more outrageous things you say, the more likely you are to get free reach, the more algorithmic juice they give you. 
So vaccines with computer chips end up as viral as dancing baby videos. Tech companies need to do a much better job controlling what goes viral, Taylor says. I like to use, you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater example, right? So you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater, but you can whisper it, right? We're, we're not going after people whispering things. We're going after people shouting things. It's not about limiting free speech. In fact, he thinks limiting virality would actually make room for more free speech. And I suppose if you were to limit these incredibly viral posts, there would be more air for everyone to breathe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think not only would there be more air for everyone to breathe, but we would be saying, actually, that a, a company like, like Facebook or Twitter or any of these tech companies should not be profiting from harm, right? So we know Facebook could have reduced COVID disinformation by 38%. It's impossible to say how many lives directly that may have saved. But what we know is they, they profited then from that disinformation. And, and that is, for me, becomes a moral question, you know? And there are campaigns specifically that came out of this idea that you should not be making money from racist abuse, misogynist abuse, public health disinformation, uh, or destabilization of democratic governments. Moderation is, of course, an essential part of any tech company's work. Really, any company's work. You get to decide, with only a few limits, who gets to buy your product or service. And if, let's say, you own a shopping mall, you get to decide what stores to rent to. That's not controversial. But what if you owned almost every shopping mall? Well, that's the position that a company like Apple finds itself in right now with its app store. You and this army, Clash of Clans. Candy Crush Saga. Download now. Thank you. Have a nice day. If a small business wants to use the app store, Apple has to approve. Apple is judge and jury for every app that appears on the app store, effectively gatekeeping every iPhone in the world. The app store is a walled garden. That, once again, is platform power. As you might imagine, this App Store gatekeeping has not been without controversy. But Jane Horvath, Apple's chief privacy officer, argues that there is tremendous benefit from this walled garden strategy. All app developers have to pay a fee, register with their real name, and submit software to review before it's posted to the App Store. That keeps things safe. Your health data. Health is an API. With the health app, you can literally upload all of your medical records. So it's really sensitive data. And any app that wants to either read or write to the health app has to agree to the developer guidelines. And one of the most important protections is those apps can only do that for the health purposes. So they can't use any data that they collect from the health app for targeted advertising, for redlining for anything other than strictly health and fitness purposes. So app agrees to that. App wants to get put on the app store and we have all kinds of technical tools that we run the app through before that app can actually be placed in the app store and put up for sale. Keeping malware or privacy invading apps out of the app store that's certainly a worthy goal, but a bit like Facebook and content moderation, 
This puts Apple in a very powerful position, deciding what stays and what goes. Should Apple, or should any tech company, really have that much power? There are lots of situations now where tech companies are acting as judge and jury in these situations. And, you know, a lot of customers probably trust whatever Apple does, but some don't. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what can Apple do? What can tech companies do in a situation where they're making these really critical decisions? I, I think I'm, I'm, this is a really interesting question. And, um, and I think it's, I think we need to look to literally the privacy community for the answer to that. We have been grappling with that very same question, particularly as GDPR was drafted and GDPR contains accountability provisions. So not only are you supposed to abide by the underlying provisions of GDPR, the law itself, but you actually have have to have systems in place to show that you're abiding by the law. So to me, we should take a page from the privacy law and make companies accountable. So you're absolutely right. Most people, we, we, we try to be a trustworthy company and do the right thing, but we should be accountable and held accountable if we do the wrong thing. So if we were to reject an app or pull an app from the app store for anti-competitive reasons, we need to be accountable for that. And I do think that there is a lot of opportunity to legislate around these accountable systems to allow for the fact that, you know, a particular technology company is not the judge and jury. So if Apple or other large tech companies were no longer judge and jury, who would be? Uh, can you throw out a couple of ideas that you like? Uh, there's a lot of proposals out there. You know, I think that I think that we'd one of them would be being transparent. So in the I described app review and we have a very, you know, back and forth with companies as to why they're rejected. Well, we could move that up and you know if they're if they are rejected of course we could be required to publish and create you know create records at the very least and probably not publish because of intellectual property concerns but you know a requirement to document why individual decisions were made and though that document could be auditable to ensure that there was no self dealing and that the reasons put down were in fact the reasons. It, your mind kind of obviously wanders to some sort of external uh, appeals process. You know, could there be a body that someone could say, I, I disagree with Apple's decision about my app. I, I want someone that has nothing to do with Apple to take a look at this. Is, is that a structure that would make sense, do you think? I, I think the devil would be in the details there and we'd need to figure out what that looks like. I mean, if, if we ended up at a place where every single small app review decision it up being litigated, it could, you know, impose an enormous cost on the system, not, not only in terms of delay, but I mean, it's, it is an interesting idea. And I think we, I don't think we're at the point to foreclose an idea like that, but I think that there is an opportunity to just start discussing ideas such as those. Start discussing ideas. Hopefully that's what we're doing here. Okay, to review. So we have these enormous, very rich companies making these very important decisions about what we see, what companies can make money, what we believe, and no one has any oversight over anything they do, so they just act as judge and jury themselves. Okay, that's not quite true. In fact, in a way, it's entirely wrong. I'm sorry, I've 
misled you a bit. Of course we have judges and juries in the U.S., and we have a prosecutor, of sorts, who already gets to drag tech companies into court for misdeeds. The Federal Trade Commission is the agency in the U.S. that's generally tasked with keeping tech companies in line. The act creating the FTC gives the agency very broad powers to regulate, well, deception of any kind by companies. And Congress has given it power to act as watchdog over other issues too, abuse of data, keeping kids under 13 off most websites. The FTC can force any tech company to be accountable for the promises it makes. So why isn't that working out? It's a bit of a complex tale. We've already told you what happened when the FTC sued Facebook back in 2011 for mistreating consumer data. The firm just did it again. To better understand this side of the problem, we talk to current and former FTC lawyers. There are lots of quirks, to use a nice term, about how the FTC gets to enforce the law. Here's Bobby Spector, longtime FTC lawyer who currently works for Commissioner Christine Wilson, describing what is sometimes called the one bite of the apple problem. For example, Facebook, they in 2012 entered an order with the FTC. And what's important to understand is we are only able for a new first time violation. We can't get civil penalties unless the company has violated one of the privacy statutes that we enforce, like the Children's Privacy Act, COPPA, that for COPPA violations, we can get civil penalties or the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But if it's, if it's a Section 5 case, unfairness or deception, we can only get an, an order. Imagine if you got a parking ticket that said simply, don't do this again, no fine, at least the first time. One free bite of the apple. You probably wouldn't be afraid of parking illegally. And the parking enforcement officers, well, they would get pretty frustrated. That's just about the situation the FTC finds itself in. But that is how Congress set things up a long, long time ago. People get upset about and are frustrated about is that our orders, even injunctive-wise, they don't go far enough. There was a criticism of the Facebook order that didn't change Facebook's core business. Well, as I explained to you before, we're bringing these cases under Section 5 of the FTC Act. This is a hundred-year-old statute that was not designed to address these kinds of practices. Yes, the FTC Act is 100 years old. Not only did the writers of the law not envision the internet, they didn't envision television when that law was written. But there's more. Updating this 100-year-old statute even making tweaks to account for small changes, well, that takes forever. Say the FTC wants to redefine location data as personal information subject to stricter controls. That can take years. The FTC is unique among federal agencies in that in our consumer protection, we have a specialized type of rulemaking called Magnus and Moss, and it's very onerous. It has many layers and procedural steps because it, it requires the FTC to, in addition to putting out a notice and getting comments, we have to hold hearings and we have to issue a findings report. It's just additional procedural steps. And each one of those, if you can imagine, could take months, right? Because you have a hearing and then you have to analyze the, the 
record of the hearing and then you have to issue these findings and and there's a particular way that has to be let's use your location example like let's say the definition of personal information didn't include your location and so the FTC would put out a notice saying we want to amend the copper rule to include location and then we'd request comments and you usually give companies at least 30 or 60 days and then if we get hundreds of thousands of comments that's a lot to review which does happen in some rules and then we have to prepare another notice that analyzes the comments and what's interesting about this is if if based on the comments the commission decides to do something very different than what it initially proposed then they, they would need to put out that new proposal for comment again you get the idea by the time the FTC decides location information is personal information that must be handled with a certain care, a thousand startups have already come and gone. While tech companies are innovating at 500 miles an hour, flying around in private jets, the FTC is chasing after them in a bicycle with one flat tire. But even that doesn't really express the depth of the David vs. Goliath challenge. Yeah, and the other challenge that we always bring up is that we have severe resource limitations. We have a division of privacy that has 40 to 45 employees, depending on the day. And then we have employees in other parts of the agency, enforcement and our Office of Policy and Planning that also work on privacy. But it's not like we're the UK commissioner's offices that has 700 plus employees and the Irish Data Protection has like 150. I mean, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to make very difficult decisions sometimes about where to you know, commit resources and, and in case selection and in research and other things. We try very hard to cover, you know, cover all the issues, but, you know, it can be challenging. And there's more. FTC rulemakers have to thread the impossible needle of making rules specific enough that a judge will get it, but not so specific that they're useless in a few months. That proved challenging for us in an enforcement action. We, we tried to enforce an order with that kind of requirement and the court said that it didn't have enough specificity to tell the company what they needed to do so they, to be able to comply. But if you put in that specificity, is it going to be outdated within a year? So it's a challenge. Which is why former FTC head of consumer protection, David Vladek, who was instrumental in that first Facebook lawsuit, sometimes sounds so exasperated. It's just a matter of triage. We just don't have the resources that are needed to really keep companies the size of Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Twitter among the cases that we brought. Remember, it wasn't just Facebook. We simultaneously sued Google. We shortly thereafter sued Twitter. We sued Apple a number of times. We sued Microsoft a couple of times. So these are big companies that have substantial enterprises that we need to oversee. And, you know, I think it is, it is fair to criticize the FTC for not doing a better job. But given the resources we had available to us, we did the best we could. Imagine suing Google and Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft all at once with a few dozen lawyers. 
trying to keep all of big tech accountable in an office that wouldn't even qualify as a mid-sized law firm. Is this situation hopeless? Well, there's plenty of proposals working their way through Congress that would fund a dramatic increase in FTC enforcement. And Lena Khan, the new FTC chair, has certainly made it clear she plans to more actively take on big tech, even if the odds are long. Uh, no, look, I think it takes courage. These are enormously well-resourced companies. Um, they are not shy about deploying those resources. And I think in these moments, it's important to kind of ensure we're, we're really showing these companies, but also showing the country that enforcers are not going to back down um, because of, you know, these companies flexing some muscle or kind of trying to intimidate us. And so I think those are um, the types of lessons that we're trying to learn looking back over the last decade. So not scared of losing, necessarily. Speaking on CNBC, Khan promised she would be willing to drag Goliath into court even if the outcome were far from clear. But I think it's certainly true that deciding when moving forward and taking action is still worth it, even if it's not a slam dunk case, even if there's a risk you might lose, there can be enormous benefits from taking that risk. Mm -hmm. You might win, right? You lose all the shots you don't take. Um, but I think what we can see is that inaction after inaction after inaction can have severe costs. And that's what we're really trying to reverse. Inaction can have severe costs. That's what we're living with right now, along with a bunch of things that really haven't worked. What we talked about today, like the Facebook Oversight Board, or companies acting as their own judge and jury, or FTC oversight. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for the FTC taking more shots, but we probably can't sue our way out of the tech lash. So next episode, we'll ask, what alternatives are there? How do we move past the Twitter dunking we started this episode with? While sometimes this problem feels helpless, this is hardly the first time humankind has faced down a powerful industry and brought it back into line. After all, the contaminated Cuyahoga River spontaneously caught fire near Cleveland several times in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Well, tomorrow marks 50 years since the last time the Cuyahoga River caught fire. A spark from a nearby train was the culprit. It made contact with piles of debris and oil in the river. Now, a lot has been done to make the river a place where people want to be. And We've cleaned up pretty big messes before. What can we beg and borrow from other big cleanup efforts in history? That's next in this special Ways and Means project, protecting democracy and ourselves from big tech next week on Ways and Means. One thing I want us to also think about is if we're to compare what we do when we're thinking about policies and regulations to companies, companies aren't afraid to fail. They try new things. You think about the fact that it's like we're on iPhone 12 or 13. They got several bites at, at this phone and we're okay with giving them a chance to prove it prove that every single iPhone's better than the last iPhone, right? I think that we should apply that same level of expectation and grace to whatever we decide on as the framework as the place to start. Because number one, it doesn't have to be perfect. And number two, it should be designed with the intent of revisiting it as tech changes. Defending democracy and us from big tech is brought to you with support from Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy and the Keenan Institute for Ethics. 
My thanks to the Ways and Means team, especially Carol Jackson and Allison Jones, for welcoming me into their podcast. Many, many thanks to engineer and sound design magician Julio Gonzalez of Symer Media, who had help from Duke's Jack Maples and Matthew Majak. Many thanks also to producer Catherine Humphreys, who kept me honest during all these conversations, to research assistants Spencer Reeves and Andrew Schaffer, and graphics designer CJ Cruz. And finally, thanks to Duke professor David Hoffman, who leads the Platform Accountability Project at Duke's Sanford School.